This morning, we're going to be looking and continuing forward in our study in Nehemiah. Uh, We're in chapter 2, starting at verse 11, so if you'd like to turn there with me. Uh, It's found in page 398 in the Blue Bible in the chair in front of you. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, please turn there with me at this time. And um, I think we're going to find this text this morning to be challenging to us personally. I know that every time I study it, uh, I'm challenged through the week while I'm preparing, so I pray that that same challenge is transferred to you as uh, we look at his word. Lead where you are. God is calling you to be one of his agents of change. Change? Isn't that a dirty word in a Baptist church? Well, it shouldn't be. Change is a great word. It's a hope-filled word. The Christian faith is all about change. The gospel message is a transformative message. If anything, Baptists are all about change. That's why we express a motto around here, changed lives, changing lives. I mean, just think about the gospel with me for a moment. God looks at your condition. He sees that unless there is a great solution offered to your lostness, you will be separated from him for an eternity. We were lost, we were his enemies, we were slaves to sin, and God sends God the Son, Jesus, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die in our place on the cross. We deserve to die for our own crimes against God, and yet God the Son offers up his life on the cross and bears our penalty. And now you and I can be recipients of grace. God's gracious gift, his own Son, And not only does he entrust us with that gift, but he also gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in your heart, who changes you by degree and by degree until that one glorious day where we will be with him and we will be made perfect. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creation. Change. Lead where you are. Becoming an agent who is partnering with God in God's work and in God's way. That's why we're saying that all the time. That's why we're saying changed lives, changing lives. Every single one of you, whether you know it or not, is called to be a leader. Now you think to yourself, well, I'm no leader. What can I do? I'm just ordinary. But that's what we're talking about here in this book of Nehemiah. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things for his sake and for his glory. Nehemiah starts off as a cupbearer and then he moves on to become a wall builder and he becomes the man that God can use to lead others for his glory. How does this happen? Well, we talked about this a little bit last week. It happens when you're convinced that things need to change. What should be? And you catch a vision of what could be the future. And we're going to see here then that you also need to influence people to change. That is leadership in a nutshell. You see, God is calling you to change people. Have you ever tried to challenge someone to change? I bet you right now there's probably a hard conversation that's just waiting that you know you need to have. 
It's not easy, is it? But that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at this text. Nehemiah challenges an entire city of people to change. And how did he do that? Well, we'll see a couple of principles as we read. He underwent some personal preparation. He saw how he could motivate others, and he knew how to handle criticism. So let's read the text, and we'll take a look at this story together. Starting at verse 11. I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dun gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem and there that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who uh, were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. God, as we look at this text this morning, I pray that you would indeed challenge us to be your agents of change. I pray, Lord, that your word would be made clear and that you would use me as your vessel to communicate it. In Jesus' name, amen. Personal preparation. Am I ready to do this job? Well, I think Nehemiah underwent a process of assessment. I think the first assessment is to assess your rest. You might notice there in verse 11 that it says he went to Jerusalem and was there three days. I want you to take your pen if you have a copy of your Bible and just underline those words three days in your text with me. I think that's very important. Nehemiah was making this grand move to lead change for God. He had gone somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand miles if you count the travel that he had underwent, plus the trip to the king's forest in order to grab the lumber. I mean, the trip must have been exhausting. We, we cover a thousand miles in what, like three to four hours on a plane? It's not how it was back then, was it? He was beat. But you know how the leader thinks, I'm exhausted, but I'm just going to push through it. The work's too important. 
tiredness can wait. I can get the job done. I mean, there will be plenty of time to rest when I'm dead. (laughs) And that's one surefire way to get yourself there. Do you know what the results of that type of activity are? Burnout, a strained home life, an inability to give anything your best. In fact, more and more research is coming out. They say that anyone that works more than about 55 hours in a week is becoming useless (laughs) to themselves, less productive. You see, the theological point that can be made is this. We are embodied creatures. God created us from dust. That means that you and I have certain limitations. The human battery runs out. There is an empty to us. And there's two competing successes, uh, pictures of success in the world. You have the business magazine cover of that hard-driving go-get-em leader. And they're standing at the top of their industry. But you never get the picture of reality behind the scenes, do you? The brokenness that comes with doing more and more and exerting and striving. I'm reminded of a story that one of the members here told me of a pastor who had left the ministry after a conversation his wife had had with his son. The boy seemingly out of nowhere said, Mommy, I wish I was in the hospital right now. And the mom's like, what are you talking about, sweetheart? You don't want to go to the hospital. And the boy said, I wish I was in the hospital because then I'd get to see daddy. You see, business comes with a cost. Busyness, that is. The cost may be your family, your health, your emotional well-being, your relationship with Christ. When you look at the biblical picture, the hard-driving leader is not the cover on the cover of the biblical magazine. You have a much different type of individual operating. You see, Nehemiah is one such picture. He is quite arguably one of the greatest leaders to have ever lived. I mean, when you consider the feat that he accomplished here in this book, he worked hard. He organized a down-and-out group, a ragtag bunch of exiles, but he also knew the supreme value of rest. Why do we overwork? I wonder if we're striving and exerting because we're trying to justify our existence. I wonder if we're trying to validate my reason for being here. But what does the gospel say? You are worthy because you are found in Christ. You're worthy not because of what you do, but because of what he did. You are secure in God. You won't accomplish more by operating at a frantic, frenetic pace. In fact, oftentimes you accomplish a lot less. I like these words from Alistair Begg. Now, I know anything that I say is going to have less impact because I don't have a Scottish accent. But he does say this. um, When you are overtired, avoid making important decisions, such as quitting a job. Avoid having hard conversations. Don't start big projects. Don't assess your spiritual condition. And certainly, Don't assess the spiritual condition of somebody else. 
Here's a leadership principle for you. You'll see it on the screen. Leaders know their limitations. Nehemiah understood that rest is spiritual. You see, in the midst of rest, you're saying that God is going to carry forth the work. We understand that if a work of God is going to be accomplished, it has to have the empowerment of God. Um, Psalm 127.1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. How else do we personally prepare ourselves? Well, we also see here that you need to assess your motivations. I want you to look at verse 12 and answer a question for me. What makes Nehemiah tick? I'm always interested in that. When you're looking at someone who wants some level of leadership, you're, you're asking yourself those kind of questions. What are they about? Why are they here doing what they're doing? Why are they trying to organize people and get people to do a certain thing? What is their angle? You can imagine people are asking that kind of question. Why is he showing up here? And uh, we ask those types of questions because too many people are motivated by some type of selfish impulse. The reason they are doing something is they're asking the question, what do I get out of this? What was Nehemiah's motivation? Verse 12 says, God had put it into my heart. Those words are so important. God had put it into my heart. He is grounded in the conviction that he is here because God wants him to be here. He's not just on a vacation. This isn't just a layover stop for him so that he can go back and do the things that he really wants to do in Susa. He knows that God has put him in Jerusalem for a reason. So what has God put on your heart to do? What is he putting into your heart about your personal ministry? What's he putting into your heart about your family relationships and your extended relationships? What is he putting into your heart for here, for Cape Cod? Have you ever asked yourself that question, why am I here? Now, I don't mean that in the existential sense, like why do I exist? I mean that in the sense of why am I here? Why am I in Cape Cod right now at this time, at this moment in history? What does God have for me to do? Is it just a stop in your career advancement? Or is there a purpose for this time in this place? What has God put in your heart to do? This is what will motivate you to lead where you are. I think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ controls us. That could be translated like this. We do what we do because of Christ's love. And what did he do? He went about the known world at that time and advanced the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who didn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. He endured suffering, beatings, hardships, shipwrecks. I mean, if you ever want the litany, just read the letters to the Corinthians and you'll get it a couple of times because they're asking what is his motivation for serving gospel ministry. And Paul says, I've got the scars to prove it. I am doing this because the love of Christ 
controls me. Albert Moeller writes, the passionate leader is driven by the knowledge that right beliefs aimed at the right opportunities can lead to earth-shaking change. People are looking. They want to see passion. They want to see conviction. They're asking the question, do you believe it? And secondly, do you love it? Muller continues, our ultimate conviction is that everything we do is dignified and magnified by the fact that we were created for the glory of God. That's why that vacation Bible school is going to be so important this summer, isn't it? We were made for his glory, and this means that each one of us has a divine purpose. The Christian finds passion in the great truths of the Christian faith, and especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one who has truly experienced the transforming and redeeming power of the gospel can think of life without passion. And that's another leadership principle to us. Leaders are passionate. They believe in what they're doing. They love what they're doing. Well, we'll see as we move forward that the personal inventory also involves assessing the work. Nothing ever got done on passion alone, right? <laughs> You've seen those passionate people that spin their wheels and never actually accomplish anything. The ideas person, they get excited about the idea, but they never follow through to see it with completion. Well, we see here in this text, especially as you go into the next chapter that we'll be looking at next week, that it's so important to put a plan in motion and to see it through to completion. So Nehemiah, being a master planner and organizer, is able in a nighttime inspection to envision what could be and should be for the process of rebuilding this wall. You look at 13 and 15, it says that he inspected the wall. The Hebrew word means to look into something very carefully. It's a, a medical term where a doctor is actually probing into a wound to see the seriousness or the extent of the pain that was caused to the person, the damage. And he's doing this and he's saying to himself, well, how bad is this wall around Jerusalem? How bad was it? <laughs> Real bad. I mean, just an absolute heap of rubble. So bad that he has to get off his animal, which was probably a donkey, and he has to walk around this wall. I mean, it is pure and utter de devastation. I'm always impressed, though, by the type of individual that can see beyond the rubble. Many people can walk into a church or a business organization or a family's home and they can say to themselves, well, this is just a complete mess. I mean, what are you doing around here? And they kick the rubble around, right? And they just stir the pot. But they can't see beyond the rubble. They can't walk around and see a picture of people organized and, and working together and, and building something beautiful through that. 
but Nehemiah could. He could see a vision of something better. But you'd have to ask people to help him, wouldn't he? And you see as we make our way forward that there's another principle. You have to be willing to motivate others. You have to ask the question, will you build the wall with me? It's been said that leadership doesn't happen until communication happens. You might have the most brilliant idea that has ever been given from God to men. You might have the passion that is like wildfire, but if you never communicate it, you will never influence people to change. Now you might say to yourself, well, um, I'm terrified of speaking in front of people. I understand that. That's actually one of the top fears in all feardom. But some of the most powerful works of leadership have happened at a coffee table. Investing another person across the table. Speaking words that are clear, consistent, and courageous. That's how leadership and influence happens. It is the essence of leadership to communicate. Now, I think of Winston Churchill, no doubt a great leader. Um, he's often cited in books, uh, in leadership books, and for good reason. He was instrumental in influencing an entire nation to stand against the tyrannical onslaught of Nazis. But when you look at this guy, you're amazed that he was able to accomplish what he did through communication. They say in his younger years that Churchill had a remarkable speech impediment. And so, knowing that communication was such an important thing, Churchill actually would spend hours and hours planning and practicing his words. Many of us make a mess of communication because we just kind of get in there like a bull in the china shop. Not him. He was said to have spent up to an hour perfecting every minute of what he would say just to get it right. I want you to hear the words as they were preparing for the Nazi advance. He said, I would say to the House, and as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all of our might and with all the strength God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can say it in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. Leadership principle number 10. Leaders know the importance of communication and they seek to communicate clearly, consistently, and courageously. This is how Nehemiah communicates. Notice how he addresses the people. He begins in verse 17, the first part, you see the trouble we are in. 
good leaders are willing to say what no one else is willing to say. People can become so accustomed to the status quo that the odd becomes normal. So accustomed that the terrible becomes acceptable. Everyone else is living in this same Jerusalem as Nehemiah is living in. They're walking around and they're seeing the rubble. How many people live like that? They're walking around in the status quo. A husband and a wife haven't spoken in a month. A child is not talking to their parents. A church at every single members meeting is bickering back and forth. There's rubble. But no one wants to say anything. Why did they let it lay? They had embraced the status quo. They had grown accustomed to disgrace. Do you see the trouble? Do you see the trouble that comes when you grow accustomed to the status quo? Is your marriage a heap of ruin? Is your relationships to people a massive stone wall that has been broken down? Maybe you're thinking of your spiritual condition this morning. You're sitting here in church listening to some preacher prattle on about this guy named Nehemiah and You're thinking to yourself, well, he seems excited about that, but I don't even know if I should be occupying the chair I'm sitting in right now. My life is a heap of rubble, and I'm not even sure if I can be made right with God. I just want to say this before I move on. The awesome thing about the Christian message is that Christ will take that rubble and he will fix it immediately. If you place your faith in him, He will take that mess of a life that you've worked on for many years and he will rebuild it right here, right now. Maybe you're looking at the rubble of the spiritual condition of Cape Cod. You hear the statistics, one church for every 8,889 people and you say to yourself, that is just a massive mass of rock that is lying on the ground and who could possibly do anything about that? Whatever the disgrace is, God's word is saying that you don't have to resign to live with the status quo. You don't have to look at the rubble and say that's just the way things are. You can make a choice. You can choose to rebuild. And that's what he says next. Look at the second part of verse 17. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision Whatever the disgrace is, there is always the choice to rebuild. And I know that that's the type of statement where you say, yeah, that's really easy for you to say, but it's a lot harder to do. I mean, me and my spouse, we we spent a long time getting where we're at right now. You're just going to stand up here on the pulpit and say, well, if I just choose to rebuild, it's going to happen? That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) How hard do you think it was for them to move just one of those stones? I mean, these things were massive. And they didn't have the modern technology that we have today. The heap took time to make. The rebuilding process takes time as well. But there's an opportunity for wisdom here um, if you can see it. Say you're in the middle of your marriage right now. Don't let the heap 
occur. Be quick to say I'm sorry. Communicate with one another. Say I love you regularly. Make time for each other. Don't let stones turn into bigger stones and bigger stones turn into boulders and boulders turn into massive heaps of rock. But if you find that there is a heap of rubble around you, it can be cleared with Christ, with willingness, with his church, and with time. I want you to notice three important words in verse 17. I've underlined these in my Bible. We, us, we. Such important words. You see, Nehemiah is a good leader. He's not the guy that's coming onto the scene and saying, I see the heap of rubble. I'll be in my office while you guys clear this out. He's looking at the heap. He's identifying with it. He's saying, your problem is my problem. This is our collective problem. And God has a big solution for this problem. And that solution is us. We're the solution. What is status quo? Who says that things have to stay the way that they are? Who says that you, the people of Jerusalem, should fall asleep every night with one eye open, wondering when people are going to come through that broken down wall and attack you at night? There is no, this is the way things are. That's not even a true option. There's never a static in life. Things either grow worse or they get better. I think about that when it comes to reaching the people for Christ here. There is no status quo. When people don't know Jesus, it's either forward or it's backward. I mean, think about the state of things right now. And unless someone tells them about Jesus, they will never hear because status quo does not work. So I'm going to ask you a question, church. Will you build the wall with me? Will you build the wall with me? Has God put something into your heart? Has he given you a burden for people? Are you here to do something or are you just here waiting for something to happen? Don't wait. Don't wait because you're waiting to fill out a spiritual gifts inventory to serve in the church. Don't wait until someone tells you to go and reach your neighbor down the road. Pick up a stone with me. Let's build this wall together. And together we can do it. You say to yourself, well, that's a scary thing. It is. It's very scary. But look at verse 18. I told them, of the hand of my God that been upon me for good and also of the words of the king that he had spoken. You can be courageous if God is behind the work. That is why a young shepherd boy could stand against the giant. He wasn't being reckless. He knew that there was a greater power involved. And when these words are consistent, when they're clear and they're courageous, People can stand and do the work together. 
Third principle, handling criticism. What if people resist change? Look at verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Here's those two guys again, aren't they? You got your Sanballat, you've got your Tobiah, and now, well, they're building a little coalition with them, aren't they? Have you ever noticed that when bitterness grows in a heart, that people just aren't content to keep it to themselves? Oh, I got to let people know how I feel about this. I'm going to build a little group that will protest with me. You've ever seen as well how the critique is ever growing. It started off with them saying simply, we're just pleased with what you're doing, and now they're sitting outside of the wall shouting ridicule at them. No matter how right your cause, no matter how well prepared and planned you are about what you're doing, when you seek to implement change, there will be critics. Don't ask yourself, is this going to happen? Say, it is going to happen. You know the truth. You can't please everyone. I think of this with regards to the criticism that Abraham Lincoln received after delivering the Gettysburg Address. I mean, a masterful use of 272 words, a two-minute speech that brought a nation together. And criticism. A speech that is so powerful that it has the power today to do what words are rarely able to do, to invoke eloquent silence. Listen to some of these critiques. The Harrisburg Patriot derided Lincoln's address by referring to it as silly remarks. Uh, They subsequently retracted that statement, but they were one of the first to criticize him. Other newspapers didn't like to uh, live to retract their words. The New York World accused Lincoln Lincoln of gross ignorance or willful misstatement with his declaration of four score and seven years ago. The Chicago Times observed, the cheek of every American must tangle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States. Foreign newspapers even got into this. Uh, The Times of London commented, the ceremony at Gettysburg was rendered ludicrous by some of the sallies of that poor President Lincoln. You must never ground a decision that you are making in uh, uh, the decision-making process of saying to yourself, what will people think if I do this? Nothing will ever get done if that is the sole reason that you are making a decision. You will be like a leaf that is tossed about on the wind, just going back and forth and back and forth, because that is what culture does. They have no idea on the matters of conviction and right and wrong. The church of Jesus Christ holds that domain, because we have the word of God, the clear revelation of what is true, what is right, and what is good. Notice Nehemiah 
grounds his resolve in something a little more substantive in verse 20. The God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He doesn't shift to the popular opinion. He doesn't ask, what will Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem think of me if I keep going? He asks a far more important question. Am I doing the right thing? And how do you know if you're doing the right thing? God put it into his heart. If God said it, that's good enough. Now as we close, I want to read to you from one of the best leadership books I've ever read called The Conviction to Lead by Albert Moeller. And listen to these words. They're very powerful. You can divide all leaders into those who merely hold an office or of position and those who hold great convictions. Life is too short to give much attention to leaders who stand for little or nothing. I want to be a leader who matters, making a difference with my leadership precisely because my convictions matter. Conviction explains how Alexandra Solzhenitsyn would, uh, could defy the Soviet regime, writing books that revealed the inhumanity of that repressive government. Conviction explains how President Ronald Reagan could stand in Berlin and against virtually all political advice demand, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Conviction explains how former Prime, uh, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher could reject calls for political compromise by responding, the ladies not for turning. Conviction explains the courage of Martin Luther King Jr. writing his now famous letter from Birmingham Jail and Nelson Mandela giving hope to his people as he was imprisoned on Robben Island. If you think about it, just about every leader who is now remembered for making a positive difference in history was a leader with strong convictions about life, liberty, truth, freedom, and human dignity. In the long run, this is the only leadership that matters. Convictional leaders propel action precisely because they are driven by deep convictions. And their passion for these convictions is transferred to followers who join in concerted action to do what they know to be right. And they know what is right because they know what is true. How could you be satisfied with anything less than that? 